Welcome to the second podcast from the SGO Education Committee Working Group on Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, or ERAS, Pathways. Today's discussion will center around another key concept we all grapple with on a daily basis in the operating room, that of perioperative pain management. As we all try to minimize opiate prescription and our patients' opiate consumption, several strategies have emerged requiring collaboration with our anesthesia colleagues. For the format of this podcast, we have invited three anesthesiologists from the UCSF Department of Anesthesia and Perioperative Care to address three different strategies, epidurals, tap blocks, and local field blocks. The working group will then address some frequently asked questions in the second half of the podcast. First, I would like to introduce Dr. Paul Sue, who also practices at the Pain Management Center at UCSF. In this segment, I will discuss the role of epidural, or more formally, epidural analgesia in post-operative pain management in ERAS pathways after gynecologic oncologic surgery. Historically, epidurals are the gold standard for post-operative pain control, especially compared against medical management. In fact, it can provide perioperative benefits beyond pain. Epidurals are associated with a decrease in risk in cardiovascular complications such as dysrhythmias, pulmonary complications such as respiratory depression, atelectasis, or pneumonia, as well as improved recovery of bowel function. However, as beneficial as epidurals can be, there are potential risks and considerations associated with this intervention. From a procedural perspective, there's a technical failure rate between five to 10%, as this is a blind tactile-based procedure. Accidental puncturers occur at a rate of one in 100, and these patients may go on to develop post-duropuncture headaches. There's also the possibility of epidural hematomas, which can have catastrophic neurologic consequences. Luckily, this is extremely rare, about one in 200,000, and anesthesia societies have published safety guidelines for antithrombotic use. These guidelines recommend limiting antithrombotics to 5,000 units of heparin two to three times a day, which can be a separate consideration for post-operative cancer patients at risk for venous thromboembolism. The administration of various medications into the epidural space is also associated with potential side effects. Local anesthetics, which are given to block nociceptive signaling, can also have off-target effects causing motor weakness or contribute to post-operative hypotension. At our institution, we have had good success in minimizing these side effects by using an ultra-dilute concentration of local anesthetics. All opioids can have the potential for respiratory depression. But to put into context, the dose of opioids given through the epidural route is significantly less than the dose given systemically. More commonly, epidural opioids may cause nausea, vomiting, or pruritus. Nowadays, ERAS pathways are widely adopted across the country, and they incorporate multimodal opioid-sparing pain regimen strategies, early mobilization, pre- and rehabilitation, patient education, and motivation. Many of the original epidural studies predate ERAS, so the role of epidurals in the present era is less clear. Epidural ERAS studies of laparoscopic procedures found improved pain severity with epidural use, but there were no differences in the rate of returnal bowel function, and controversially, 
Some studies actually reported longer length of stays with epidurals, while others found no differences. In epidural ERAS studies of open procedures, epidural use resulted in better pain control and faster recovery of bowel function. However, other outcomes such as length of stays were comparable. The question quickly surfacing from these studies is whether statistical differences in pain scores translate into clinical recovery or other outcomes measures of interest within an ERAS pathway. Advances in other regional anesthesia techniques such as tap blocks and field blocks with long-acting local anesthetics such as liposomal bupivacaine, which my colleagues will discuss, can also provide excellent pain control well into the postoperative recovery period. Unfortunately, direct head-to-head -head comparisons of these interventions have yet to be conducted. As one example of how epidurals are incorporated into ERAS pathways, at our institution, we reserve epidurals for patients undergoing open procedures, such as tumor debulkings or radical hysterectomies, for patients with poor cardiopulmonary reserves, or for patients for whom we anticipate difficult to manage postoperative pain. For example, patients with a history of chronic pain, chronic opioid use, or patients who we anticipate prolonged NPO status. Thank you for listening. Next, we will hear from Dr. Pedram Aleshi, who is the Director of Regional Anesthesia at UCSF. According to the 2019 update article on guidelines for perioperative care and gynecologic oncology ERAS Society recommendations, Postoperative pain after surgery plays a major role in patient quality of life, and it may also be associated with higher complication rates, longer length of stay, increased rate of readmission, as well as higher costs. Multimodal analgesia allows the use of multiple classes of medications, as well as routes of administration to minimize negative side effects and maximize analgesic efficacy without over-reliance on opioids. Use of acetaminophen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs around the clock, starting in the preoperative area before surgery, has been shown to decrease opioid consumption. Wound infiltration and epidural analgesia will be discussed by other experts in the segment. My focus will be the use of regional anesthesia, primarily transversus abdominis plane or TAP blocks. Other truncal regional anesthesia techniques, such as quadratus lumborum blocks and erector spinae blocks, are done more posteriorly. Tap blocks are easier to perform because they can be placed with patients in supine position. Tap blocks can be performed blindly using anatomic landmarks, laparoscopically guided, or done with ultrasound guidance, as most commonly done by anesthesiologists. In general, tap blocks are useful for lower abdominal surgeries below the umbilicus. Traditional tap blocks fail to reliably cover incisions above the umbilicus and therefore will underperform when compared to local infiltration analgesia. Tap blocks also need to be done bilaterally to cover midline incisions or incisions that cross midline, such as fan and steel incisions. Tap blocks, also similar to local infiltration, don't have any visceral organ coverage. Part of the analgesic properties of tap blocks comes from more than just dermatomal coverage of the incision but also from relaxation of the abdominal wall muscles, decreasing muscle contractions and pain associated with it. A variant of a tap block called the subcostal tap block can be done higher up in the abdomen for more cephalad incisions. It is also possible to place catheters in the tap block tissue plane to prolong analgesia. Even without catheters, many studies have shown that tap blocks last longer than 
local infiltration analgesia if the same local anesthetic is injected. However, this analgesia is often good for about six to 12 hours and evidence for a more prolonged analgesia is scarce. As for the evidence, there are plenty of papers published on efficacy of tap blocks in various abdominal surgeries. A meta-analysis looking at effectiveness of tap blocks versus placebo or saline was published in the European Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Reproductive Biology in 2013. Authors found that tap blocks significantly reduced pain scores at rest or with movement two hours post-surgery, but not at 24 hours post-surgery. They also found a difference of nearly 12 milligrams of morphine equivalents in opioid consumption favoring the tap block in the first 24 hours. Another 2020 systematic review and meta-analysis article published in the Journal of American College of Surgeons comparing laparoscopically guided and ultrasound-guided tap blocks with local infiltration showed that laparoscopically guided and ultrasound-guided tap blocks provide a comparable analgesia, but were both superior to wound infiltration for early postoperative pain control. Other recovery parameters, 24-hour opioid consumption and postoperative nausea vomiting were comparable between the laparoscopically and ultrasound-guided tap blocks. In summary, in the multimodal regimen, tap blocks can play a significant role when performed by experts, either laparoscopically or ultrasound-guided. They can provide postoperative analgesia and have an opioid-reducing effect that typically fades in less than 12 hours. Although they're not as good as epidurals in providing postoperative analgesia in large open abdominal surgeries, they certainly have a role in cases where laparoscopic surgery is converted to open surgery or for small lower abdominal incisions, or for cases with absolute or relative contraindications to epidural placement, as well as cases when epidurals are not functioning well. I hope you found this overview helpful. Our third speaker will be Dr. Leland Chen, Chief of Adult Anesthesia at our UCSF Mission Bay campus. A key tenet of enhanced recovery pathways includes attempting to maximize multimodal pain regimens and minimizing the use of opiate medications. While neuroaxial and truncal blocks will be covered by others, this podcast will be specifically covering the use of local anesthetic injections in gynecologic oncology surgeries. According to the Guidelines for Perioperative Care in Gynecologic Oncology, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Society Recommendations 2019 update, there is a high level of evidence to use incisional injection of bupivacaine. One of the studies cited in this consensus statement compared transversus abdominis plane block versus surgical site infiltration for pain management after open total abdominal hysterectomy. Surgical site infiltration and transversus abdominis plane blocks are commonly used to improve pain relief after lower abdominal surgery. This randomized observer-blinded study was designed to compare the analgesic efficacy of tap blocks with surgical site infiltration in patients undergoing open total abdominal hysterectomy via a fanestyl incision. Surgical site infiltration provided superior pain relief at rest and on coughing, as well as reduce opiate consumption for up to 48 hours. Another study from the Calogera Group from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, published their results on abdominal incision injection of liposoma bupivacaine and opiate use after laparotomy for gynecologic malignancies. Two cohorts were analyzed in this investigation. One, staging laparotomy for gynecologic malignancies, and two, 
the complex cytoreductive surgeries. This is a retrospective cohort study that was conducted to compare abdominal incision infiltration with liposomal bupivacaine with plain bupivacaine after modification of a pre-existing enhanced recovery pathway. Abdominal incision infiltration with liposomal bupivacaine was associated with less opiate and patient control analgesia use with no change in pain scores compared with plain bupivacaine. However, there was no difference in length of stay nor total cost. Liposomal bupivacaine was approved by the FDA as a local anesthetic for use in the management of post-surgical pain in adults in 2011. Liposomal bupivacaine is being marketed as a novel anesthetic agent for treatment of post-surgical pain in adults secondary to its slow-release depot foam encapsulated formulation. There is much scrutiny over drug costs. At UCSF, the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee must approve all drug usage. Liposomal bupivacaine has only been approved for select services and indications primarily because of the large price differential. One vial of liposomal bupivacaine costs $300, as opposed to one vial of plain bupivacaine, which costs $3. The first surgical service to be granted use of liposomal bupivacaine at UCSF was the urology cystectomy patients. Though the urology cystectomy patients are not the same population as the gynecologic oncology population, we have published our urology cystectomy experience and it is meaningful to share. Liposomal bupivacaine was injected into subfascial layers during closure via a total of 150 milliliters of volume. 20 milliliters of 266 milligrams of liposomal product suspended with 30 mils of 0.25% plain bupivacaine and 100 mils of injectable normal saline. Liposomal bupivacaine use was independently associated with shorter postoperative length of stay, less total opiate use, earlier diet advancement, and decreased overall direct costs. Additionally, 45% of patients who received liposomal bupivacaine were opiate-free through the duration of their surgical encounter. Based on this data, the UCSF Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee has extended usage to the gynecologic oncology service for specifically laparoscopic to open conversion patients. Incisional injection of preperitoneal, subfascial, and subcutaneous planes with bupivacaine is an effective technique for perioperative pain management, minimizing opiate use and other related side effects. The question remains whether this can be established with plain bupivacaine or if there is an added benefit with liposomal bupivacaine. Thank you to Drs. Sue, Aleshi, and Chen for those thoughtful considerations. As we all practice with efforts to contain cost, liposomal bupivacaine is often cited as being cost prohibitive, but epidurals can be expensive as well. What are the financial considerations related to these techniques, Dr. Stuart Winkler? So cost is certainly a consideration when discussing perioperative pain techniques. Many factors go into the total cost, including the use of medications and equipment, provider time, OR time, length of stay, risk of complications, and reimbursement. A retrospective study from the Cleveland Clinic in 2019 tried to answer some of these questions for patients undergoing major lower abdominal surgery. Using a comprehensive cost model, the total cost of an IV patient-controlled anesthesia or PCA device was about $9,000, and the cost of a TAP block with liposomal bupivacaine was also about $9,000. 
The cost of the liposomal bupivacaine used in the tap block calculation was $356 for a 20 milliliter vial. Epidural anesthesia was significantly more costly at around $13,000. The most significant components of the increased cost of the epidural were increased provider time, patient length of stay, and rare but costly adverse events. Yet, when considering our complex oncologic surgery patients, postoperative pain control is of utmost importance. Traditionally, we would have used a PCA delivering IV opiates for all patients. Beyond PCA, can you share your postoperative management strategies at the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Amanika Kumar? During the implementation of our EROS protocol, we switched from PCA use to wound infiltration with liposomal pipivacaine at Mayo Clinic. As we published in 2016 in the Green Journal, we were able to virtually eliminate the use of PCAs and had significant decrease in overall morphine equivalents used by patients. And this did not change length of stay or overall pharmaceutical costs, which is obviously an important factor when discussing liposomal pipivacaine. Further, there was a reduction in nausea and vomiting. Now, it's very important to look at this study and look at the inclusion criteria because we only noted this improvement when we looked at complex cytoreduction. And so that was defined as patients who needed more than a hysterectomy, bilateral self-linguophorectomy, and staging with lymphadenectomy and omentectomy. So patients who had a simple staging procedure or something not very complex, were, there was no difference. So in our practice, we have turned to using liposomal pipicaine for all complex oncologic surgeries, and we do not use epidurals or PCAs. In addition, we had a follow-up study looking at narcotic prescriptions, and this was published in Gynecologic Oncology in 2020, and it showed that 31% of our complex oncologic surgery patients do not receive any opioid prescription at the time of discharge, with over 70% of patients seizing opioid use by one week post-discharge. These data from these two studies demonstrate the use of liposomal bupivacaine being effective for complex oncologic surgery and gynecologic oncology with no increase in length of stay or pharmaceutical costs. Now, recently, there was a study from the ND Anderson group that was a randomized control study that compared standard bupivacaine versus liposomal bupivacaine in oncologic surgeries. There was just over 100 patients in the prospective study, and they showed overall no difference in morphine equivalents used postoperatively or in patient-reported outcomes. This then comes into question our use of liposomal bupivacaine, but I think it's important to look at the group of patients that were in this study. And overall, it did not seem like they had very complex surgeries or certainly not the, the entire group having complex surgeries. So I think it's important to keep in mind that liposomal bupivacaine, with its added cost, may be most important in those larger, more complex surgeries, which is where the best data for its use is. Regardless of the choice of narcotic pain medicine delivery, certainly it is important to remember the use of multimodal non-narcotic pain medicine as well as non-pharmacologic pain relief options. We currently have two ongoing trials looking at the next step of pain control, one is a randomized control trial that is examining the addition of spinal anesthesia to liposomal bupivacaine for perioperative pain control and complex oncologic surgery. And then the other is a very large multi-institutional study across several surgical disciplines looking at non-pharmacologic options for pain control. 
these results from these two studies will help answer some of the unanswered questions left in perioperative pain control, particularly in the complex oncologic surgery group. Dr. Kumar mentioned the possibility of adding standard bupivacaine in lieu of standard liposomal bupivacaine, so maybe liposomal bupivacaine is not needed. But in the meantime, Dr. Lisi Simons, can you discuss how you administer your local anesthetic at the time of laparotomy? Some surgeons combine liposomal bupivacaine with short-acting local anesthetics at the time of administration. This serves two purposes. First, to increase the volume of injectable solution, which is helpful with a large incision, and second, to enhance the immediate analgesic effect. There is limited published data on the efficacy of this approach. However, there is an ongoing randomized clinical trial looking at this approach in patients undergoing abdominal hysterectomy via a midline incision. When considering the combination of liposomal bupivacaine with other medications, it is important to be aware of potential drug interactions. Non-bupivacaine local anesthetics, such as lidocaine, may cause an immediate release of bupivacaine from Expirel if administered together locally. As such, the combination of Expirel and lidocaine should be avoided. Expirel can be combined with bupivacaine hydrochloride, though the addition of bupivacaine hydrochloride may impact the pharmacokinetic properties of Expirel in a concentration-dependent manner. When used in combination, the ratio of the milligram dose of bupivacaine hydrochloride to Expirel should not exceed 1 to 2. For example, if using a 20 milliliter vial of Expirel, which is 266 milligrams, this could be combined with a 30 milliliter vial of quarter percent bupivacaine, which is 75 milligrams of bupivacaine, for a total volume of 50 milliliters. If additional volume is needed for a large incision, this can be further diluted using normal saline or up to a total of 50 milliliters of quarter percent bupivacaine. That's some helpful technical know how. It may also be helpful in patients for whom neuroaxial blockade is contraindicated. Dr. Ronnie Natecki, can you please share some of your concerns for patients on anticoagulation, which many of our cancer patients are taking? Any patient who is receiving anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy and undergoes neuroaxial anesthesia is at an increased risk of hemorrhagic complications, the most serious of which is a spinal epidural hematoma. While it is a rare outcome, it is devastating, as an expanding hematoma can lead to spinal cord ischemia, which may result in severe neurologic damage. To minimize this risk, the specific medication and timing of the last dose are to be considered. This requires preoperative planning and weighing the risk of bleeding, given neuraxial blockade, versus the risk of thrombotic complications if anticoagulation is discontinued. In the case of therapeutic Lovenox for a pulmonary embolism, an interval of at least 24 hours is recommended between last dose and neuraxial anesthesia. Antifactor 10A levels may be helpful, although safe levels have not been determined. Lovenox should then be restarted no sooner than four hours after removal of an epidural catheter. In patients with compromised renal function, the intervals should be doubled. It is important to note that the risk of discontinuing Lovenox in this situation is highest immediately following the PE and declines over time. In patients diagnosed with a PE within the preceding three months, bridging anticoagulation with prophylactic dosing prior to surgery may be preferable, and an alternative to neuraxial anesthesia may be considered. There's less clinical experience with new direct oral anticoagulants 
and the recommendations are based on half-lives. For example, rivaroxaban has a half-life of five to nine hours, and guidelines suggest that naraxyl anesthesia be performed no sooner than 72 hours after the last dose, though no safe level has been determined. The agent should be resumed no sooner than six hours after catheter removal, and no sooner than 24 hours if a traumatic placement occurred. In the case of rivaroxaban, there is no required adjustment for renal function. Finally, if anticoagulants were continued without interruption by error, or in the case of an emergent procedure, neuroaxial anesthesia is not an option. So those are some more caveats to consider for neuroaxial blockade and procedural risks. There are also some times where we may start a case laparoscopically, but then require an open incision. Dr. Jeannie Chern, would you like to share some of your thoughts? For specimen retrieval that cannot be accomplished vaginally, one consideration is delivery through a mini laparotomy. If a top lock was not performed preoperatively, one may consider the location and the size of wound to perform either a laparoscopically guided tap or surgical site infiltration with local anesthetic, commonly bupivacaine or liposomal bupivacaine. In combination to oral acetaminophen and NSAIDs, this has been shown to be an easy, safe, and effective way to achieve pain control. In patients who may not be able to tolerate Trendelenburg, and the surgical plan is to proceed with a robotic platform with a high probability of conversion to a transverse incision to complete the procedure, it is important to consider this possibility preoperatively with your anesthesiologist. A preoperative tap block may be beneficial in these cases versus local wound infiltration. One prospective randomized controlled trial in women undergoing hysterectomy by a fan steel incision compared tap blocks with bupivacaine versus surgical site infiltration with liposomal bupivacaine demonstrated the latter to be superior in pain relief and significant decrease in opioid consumption in the first 48 hours. Only patients who have persistent pain despite the oral regimen of acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and PO and IV options of opioids that have inadequate pain control, a PCA is then considered. Thank you to all of the discussants in this podcast. We recognize that there are varying practices nationally and that optimizing the practice at an academic medical center may differ than in a community setting without a dedicated pain service. The use of tap blocks and field blocks may be limited by knowledge of placement. We hope that this presentation will generate additional discussion in your own clinical management. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on-the-go podcasts, please email us at education at sgo.org.